four, three, two, one. Interview with Tom Hafey about his playing career on August the second, two thousand and four, at his home on uh, in St Kilda. Can probably attend his there, but don't. Mm. Firstly, thank you for your time. It's okay. I always start off by saying, can you, for the record, state your full name and your date of birth? Thomas Stanley Raymond Hafey, born nineteen thirty-one, fifth of August. What did your parents do for a living? My father was a printer, compositor, and my mother was a housewife. We had uh, five children in our family. I'm the eldest. Uh, Jimmy, who passed away, Peter, 10 years younger than I. Brenda, 17 years younger than I. And Michael, 18 years younger than I. The, um, did Dave Barrick for anyone? Uh, my father Barrick for the Magpies. He, no, we lived in Richmond. Oh, no, I wouldn't have a clue. Uh, but uh, when we were growing up, uh, we went to Canberra into the Depression. Uh, so there was uh, only, well, very little work. And my father being a printer, uh, was working one week in every four with two little boys. So about 1936, 37, we went up to Canberra. We lived there for six years. Peter was born there. We came back and lived in East Melbourne, which was Richmond's area, even though we lived in probably six houses in Richmond before we uh, went up to, to Canberra. Then East Melbourne was Richmond's area. I played down at uh, East Melbourne in the Corporate Oakley District League, CAD League, which is ordinary competition, and we're a very ordinary team. And uh, then I went to the Tigers in 1953. Yeah. Um, in East Melbourne, was there anyone else from that team who went on? Later years, Johnny Ronaldson, okay. yes, and John Wilson, I think Bobby Reese were players who actually played games with the Tigers, uh, but they didn't play in my particular time. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we probably middle of the list team without ever looking like making finals in the period that I was there. And I can't think of too many players in the competition that went on. To a great extent, Jerry Walsh, Jerry Collins, both played at Richmond, came from New South, Noel Webster. Yeah, there were probably a few, but didn't make, they really weren't big, big, big names, I guess. Was your father taking two names? Oh, my word. Uh, we actually followed uh, different teams. I remember we had a very best mate, uh, Barry Hawthorne. So in 1942, 43, I think we seen Hawthorne because it was, it was only a tram stop away, where that's how you went. Like, yeah, you catch a train to go to the hoodie or the tram. And in his case, he's uh, one of his very good friends was a Hawthorne supporter, so we saw a lot of Hawthorne games. Yeah. So you went to Glen, did you go to Glen Ferry often? Yeah, went there, yep. Yeah. I would have seen probably every game they played at Hawthorne, but then we'd probably go to uh, Richmond or the uh, Collingwood to see their teams as well, but we'd go everywhere. My father took me. So it would be a mixture of that? Mixture yeah, of yeah. So who did you marry for? I married for Collingwood right. as a youngster. Because of your father? Yeah, yeah. Right. So did you have a Collingwood hero? Growing up, or did you have a hero in football in general growing up um, as a junior? Probably Louis Richards. Right. Yeah, and later on it would be Des Fothergill and Bobby Rose. Uh, Jack Dyer and Bill Morris were at uh, Tigerland at that particular time. Yeah. Did you go to Richmond's Premiership Grand Premiership match? In 1943. I was there. Yep. Do you My dad took me. Remembered well. Did you just go with your father? Oh, yeah. Just, just you and your father? Yes, I don't think my younger brother could have been. Now, Jimmy probably would have been with us as well. Yeah. But I'm thinking now, 43, I'm 12. So I guess he would have been with me at 10. So 
was it a big thing to go to a crib with a grandma? Oh, yeah. Well, I don't know about a big thing, but it was, uh, as you know, standing room and, you, right. and whatever, whatever. Yeah. So you wouldn't have got too many seats because it was up at Carlton. Right, okay. Yeah, it wasn't played at Melbourne Crooked Ground. So you just got tra the train up there or the train? Oh, yes, I guess so. I can't remember that. Do you have a particular memory of the game itself? I do. I can remember different things in it. I remember the two full backs, uh, Cess Rubble for Essendon and Ron Dunham for Richmond. And they were just such beautiful kicks. And each one of the kicks that they kicked out, big drop kicks, were just going right to the wing nearly every time they kicked the ball out. And I can remember uh, the Tigers winning by five points. Yeah, I remember different things yeah, in, on the game. Remember where you were standing? No. I, I can't actually pick the place, but he would have been round about the wing half-forward line. Were you barricade for Richard on that day? Oh, yeah. 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 Mm. Was there a particular club you disliked? Like a rivalry or anything like that? Probably Carlton. <laughs> so you're yeah. a 12-year-old watching mm. the 1943 grand final. Yeah. And little would you realise that you would actually be the next person to coach Richmond to a premiership? Uh, that's the way it worked out, I guess, of course. But uh, at that time, everybody thought they were going to play league football. But as you got a little bit into your local football, you realised that, hey, to play uh, at a higher level was a very difficult thing. And so, therefore, you'd probably be more, uh, say, interested in your own local team and your teammates, uh, things like that. And if it was going to happen, well... You're never quite certain, of course. It wasn't, it wasn't as though it was a burning ambition. It probably, if I was to ask uh, 10 youngsters now at the schools I go to, uh, what are you going to do? I'm going to play football, I'm going to play football, I'm going to play football. 10 in a row. I think, well, I don't your luck. Like, let's face it, there hasn't been one youngster come from this school to play league football. If I've got 10 in the front row, it's all going to play league football. Did you tell them that? No, I don't say that. No, I don't say that. No, I think, well, you've got to work hard. You've got to work hard. Yeah. yeah. Well, apart from, is there any other sport apart from Oh, cricket. You played football during the footy season, you played cricket during the cricket season. And that was just the way life went. That was just it. That was it. Yeah. Were you a good cricketer? Oh, no, I don't think the average cricketer. Yeah, I probably only played a couple of years after I left school as well. And mainly because it cut into your football, uh, say, training. Or also, they used to have a break over the Christmas time, which more or less because I wasn't that crazy about it compared to football, it had probably take a bit of your, uh, a little bit of the interest and maybe it was beach weather as well at that particular time then, coming up Christmas time, but they'd probably have about four weeks break at Christmas time. There'd be no matches played because people go away for holidays because everybody had their Christmas holidays. Yeah, they were all factory stop practically. It's not like now where they have rostered holidays. Uh, people just, factories would close down. Yeah, yeah, that's how it was. As a junior watching Richmond, was there particular players that stuck in mind apart from Durham. I don't know much about Ron Durham. What was he like as a player? Oh, star. Yeah. Yes. He, his knee, I think. Uh, he did. He played uh, not many games compared to a lot of other people. I think he's number one. And uh, came from Backish Marsh. He got electrocuted. I remember reading in the paper many years ago. He was very young when he died. And um, But obviously, Bill Morris and Billy Wilson uh, were big names as the years got going. Uh, but Roy Wright was another big standout that you just remembered because so much about him. And, and he started off with slow, Roy, didn't he, as a junior? He did, yeah. He was struggling. Yeah. yeah. And then Morris. But, but, of course, Jack Dyer, because of the Captain Blood name, yeah. and also Dirty Dyer was what people used to call him because he was so uh, big and powerful and fast and skillful. There were so many things about him that I suppose the opposition uh, didn't like about him. And also because he threw his weight around, uh, it, was a, it was a pretty 
Yeah, pretty fearsome sort of a person, I suppose. Was he that, was he that great of a player as it's, as it's been? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Pretty turned the game himself, pretty changed the game. Yes, though probably his better years had gone by and he was more stationed at full forward as the years got going. But in the period that we're talking about, he was first truck. Yeah, yeah. How did you get from this man? Don Fraser was another superstar. Yeah, yeah. Crazy? Uh, well, fiery, fiery, I would say. Had I got this mile from we catch the train from Caulfield, because we lived in this mile from the, and the runway, closest runway station would have been Caulfield. It was much of much, but I suppose uh, Caulfield was probably a little bit closer than what uh, East Melbourne station was. How did Richard show interest in you? It, I was in the area, and somebody must say, oh, there's a player at East Melbourne, and I'm invited down to come and take a part of the train. And they, yeah, well, they might have sent out that to a stack of people. Yeah, I don't know. Murray Fleming. Definitely Murray. Yeah. Yep. yep. Did so any other club show interest, or they couldn't? No, they couldn't. Yeah. It was, no, you were zoned to your uh, Metropolitan Zone Club. That was it. So we just wanted to maybe call you in that somebody... Was, but I didn't think I'd make it. I thought if I was to play reserves, that's a big uh, step from playing, uh, say, senior football out in the suburbs. So in each case, like, if you ever saw anybody who actually played in uh, one of the reserves team, you'd, yeah, you'd talk about it because that's a, that's a, he stepped out uh, now a little bit elite. And if anybody made the first, well, yeah, yeah that was just me. you seen somebody in the street and he was a Melbourne footballer or a South Melbourne footballer. Gosh, that was like seeing royalty, yeah, a film star, yeah. How old were you when you came to a uh, About 20, yeah. And you started training them in the, in the reserves, is that how it came uh, Yep, uh, they yeah, played like practice matches. Reserves. Yeah, they'd probably have four practice matches at a weekend. Um, on the Saturday, they'd probably start at maybe, ooh, I guess 10, 12 and 2, might have been three practice matches in that case, might have been somewhere else. But they would then put lists up about who they were going to keep, uh, and they'd nearly reach a name on the board. More or less, you still need to come down the train. And there'd be oh, 150-odd players running around the training track. So obviously at times, some would be maybe overlooked. That's a possibility. And then the practice matches, you'd play practice matches between your own team. So there were three practice matches, starting at, say, 10 o'clock, 12 o'clock, and 2 o'clock. And if you're in the main practice match, you've got a big chance of making the final list. Is that the last practice match, the main practice match? Sorry, yeah. Order. yeah, yeah, yeah. So you'd be all the senior players, the first and second from the previous year, yeah. plus the, uh, who they thought were the better known recruits, I guess, along that line. Yeah. And then it was a matter of elimination. So why did they choose you? Why did they choose me? Why did they keep you on list, or of all the people, I mean, did you perform well in the practice games? Oh, yeah. look, I can't admit that. I suppose they must have thought that uh, what that scene was, Worth enough to look at along that line. Predominantly, what position were you recruited for? Uh, roving, half forward. Right. I played in the centre at East Melbourne, and um, probably because of my size, I was going to be a rover half forward midfielder. Um, I was probably five foot seven and a half, five foot eight, yeah. and about 12 stone. But it must have been possible to make a crack into the senior team with the quality of players that they had. Oh, yeah, but that's the way you go. You play in the reserves. Yeah, yeah I played my first game. Uh, that was always at the away ground. See, the thirds used to be the curtain raiser. Did you know that? Yes. Under 19s was curtain raiser to the first. The reserves played at the away ground. Yep, so like uh, my first game, Richmond played Melbourne. Yeah. 
Reserves, is it? Uh, yep. Richmond Seniors played at Punt Road and we played across the uh, car park at the MCG. And it was uh, Ron Brassie's first game also. Really? Yeah. But he was 18 and I was probably 20 at the time. Yeah. And I can remember him. How did you perform in that game? Oh, I thought I played pretty ordinary and, um, and I got dropped the following week. Uh, but well, they, they might have me on the bench. And I came into the team. Was Carlos in your team? He was, yeah. yep. Do you have memories of Cole? Oh, yeah. As a coach? <clears throat> yeah, very, very good. Oh, very good. And uh, he was playing coach, see. And so, therefore, as a result, uh, he was uh, cut above the other players. Sure. Yeah, in the team. Yeah, he was cut above the other players. He'd probably, I don't know what age he would have been, but I guess he'd probably be well into the veterans. He might have been early 30s at that stage. And as you know, he won the Brownlow at Hawthorne, yeah, retrospective. And um, he played at Richmond. Uh, for quite some time, and they're very good players. So your form must have been good enough to get a, a senior selection. Yeah, I was in the team probably fifth match of the year. Yeah, so I played about three or four. I think I might have played five games in the reserves, and then got in the seniors. Do you remember being told you're in the seniors? No, I don't think I was. I think I might have read in the paper the next day, and I was on the bench. Who was that against? Uh, Collingwood, my first game. At Victoria Park. Might have been the sixth match of the year. And I came on, in the third quarter, I picked up the ball, bang, goal. You just went straight off the bench during the third quarter? Yep, yep. So I had to go, and I don't know how I, who I replaced, yeah. but I was 25 metres that from goal, 30 metres, and the first, luckily, I was facing that way, was I would have kicked it, no matter which way I was facing, I was going to put the boot on it. Yep, so I kicked the goal, first kick. Right footer? Yeah. Would you ever kick me to the left? No, not much. No, not much. That is good, your father. <laughs> did, your, um, did your parents come watch you? Do you recall? Was it a big, I mean, was it a thrill? Did you recall? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, I've got you. People said that Tommy will be sitting down in his black dressing gown at 4 o'clock in the morning waiting for the game to start. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the next week I played, they had, uh, I'll tell you what they did, they had a light and premiership. Might have been Queen's birthday. Really? Yeah, and Richmond might have won it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I kicked a couple of goals that day too from half with Lane. Yep. Yeah. On the day you debuted, two other Richmond players debuted. You know who they might be? The day I did. On the day that you debuted against Collingwood, two other Richmond players debuted. Could have been Ray Orson. Kevin Gleeson. Yeah. And Jeff Patterson. Jeff Patterson. Mm. Is that a fact? I didn't know that. That's a fact. Rang last night. I did? Yeah. Not to talk about your first game of league footy, are No, we will. 1953. Yes. And, uh, Kevin Gleeson only played the one game. Was Panham your coach? Panham, yep. Was he senior coach? Yep. How did he differ from Cole Austin as a coach? Oh, well, Cole Austin was the playing coach, and uh, the playing coach and the reserves coach had very little input into the training because it was nearly all Albert Panham. And Albert Panham was terrific, in my opinion. I really loved him. Yes, he was really good. And uh, very uh, fit and very enthusiastic. Yep, no, no, I was really, I was a real fan of Albie Hannum. If you were playing in the reserves, would you train with the reserves? No, they all trained together. Oh, everyone trained together. Yeah. Under Hannum's? Under Albie Hannum, yeah, because all the list. So you'd nearly have, uh, you'd have probably 40 first and seconds. Yeah. Right? So there'd be 40 players there. Good. Same as what there is now. But, I mean, did, did you find that he actually had an interest in the, the younger people? I mean, was his focus, you know, the, the main people? Oh, was it, was focus, it I would have thought his focus would have been for the main team, uh, but they never broke us up. That I can recall. 
But as I say, I was only there for five weeks in the reserves. Uh, but the players would be dropped, promoted and relegated, promoted and relegated as, uh, along that line. What did training consist of? Uh, well, you'd do a lap and you'd just start kicking, kick to kick. Mm. Coach would bring you in and talk a little while and then we'd do circle work. And he'd bring us in a couple of times to do circle work it's in the main. For that, yeah, yeah. Did you have an occupation at the time? Everybody had an occupation. I was a printer. Yep. I came in from. Uh, I was apprenticed at Carnegie. You said to leave work early to go to training? Yep. But I remember saying to the boss that uh, would it be alright if I left to go to training early? And um, he. He was a little bit wary because I wasn't going to get off any early because I was going to work through lunch hour or get there early. But he was a little bit, oh, and I said, oh, so I give him notice instead. Yeah, and yeah, so I went out and I worked out a footscray in the printing trade. And um, therefore I could work right through lunchtime, which I did, and got away at four o'clock. So I was down at grounds because training probably started at five o'clock. Okay. So I kept training, train, yeah. And would you just stop when it was dark, training? Is that, you just keep training until it was dark or? Yes. Leave there wasn't much in lighting. The lights we had, no, they didn't have much light here. Like this was a big, say, electric lights. There wasn't much, in, in particularly nothing like we've got now. Yeah. You could do the, do some training with the ball, but the, it was very poor. The, the lighting at the grounds were very, very poor. Yeah, really poor. Uh, you'd train, um, say, from March would be start, and obviously right up until, uh, say, getting close to May, you could still trained pretty good because the light's still reasonably good then. Then you'd have probably June, July, where the, it'd be very dark, but they would have the lights and so you'd do other running and say, more or less just kicking the ball sort of stuff. But in the main, it was uh, the lights were very poor, compared, obviously compared to what we got now, of course. What, yeah. were, what were the grounds like? Oh, you've probably seen photos of them. They're in bad shape compared to what they've got now. What was the worst ground that you were there? Uh, that's a fact. Um, the worst grounds, a lot of them would be much the same. There'd be a couple of grounds that were reasonably good. good South place? Melbourne's was very good because of the uh, the sandy soils and Kilda down at the junction would be very good. Mm. Melbourne Cricket Ground, I suppose, was another one because it was probably looked after a bit better than the others. What was Punt Road like? Uh, Punt Road was very heavy, and particularly in the centres because they had turf wickets and oh. uh, it was a really bog. You've probably seen a lot of photos of it. And uh, sometimes, whew, like you wouldn't, you'd, you'd still play on them. But it was trained, you had to, re, you had uh, the third training on a Monday and a Wednesday, and you had your seniors, which was 40 players, would be trained on a Tuesday and Thursday. So, like, it was, it was being used every day, uh, and also being ploughed up. And when it rained, you wouldn't go off the ground, you'd still be on the ground. And so, as you know, as you keep on running on a wet ground, next minute it's very, very muddy. And there was no such thing as rolling them out and that you couldn't do, you didn't do those type of things. Yeah. How much did you get paid? Uh, now this is, uh, from memory, and a bit rough, probably about £10 a week. £10 a week was probably about the wage that you received as a printer or as a plumber. So, that, so in comparison, that wasn't for me, was that was a fact. Hey, I'm just checking your Oh, thank you. Thank you. Oh, the biscuits are nice too. Yes, please, Alice. Um, mine, mine, mine a bit stronger than what you did last two. Oh, well, I'll have to make one for you. That's it. <laughs> Hi. 
Anything else, sir? <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh, no, the wages were uh, probably three pounds. <clears throat> and they had a profit fund. Yes. But I think it was round about, like, you know, when I left <coughs> in 58, it was £10. Definitely £10. But I think it might have gone up gradually. It might have been three or four. It might have been five. I can't quite remember. But when I left in 58, it was £10. Yep. So if you look at it, 18 games plus two finals, which we never played, the most anybody would get would be £200. Because there was a cotton law. You heard of this? Sort of. Nobody got paid any more than anybody else. Yeah, if anybody got paid, it would be only a couple of pounds, it would be on the table. Yeah, but, in, in, but it was recognised. Yeah. You weren't allowed to break the cold law. Sometimes they would give players all money to sign them up, and that was against the law. Yeah, and that was usually fellas in the country, because they weren't zoned. Right. So the fellow was up at Ballarat, and he was a very good player. And he was available to anyone, any team? Yeah. Right. Polly Farmer, for a start, was West Australian. Now, uh... He would have got a sign-on fee. It might have been a thousand pounds. It might have been. I'm not quite certain, but that's. I would think that'd be in that area. But uh, that's why a lot of players, and you've probably heard this, left to play in the country at a very young age. Like Bobby Rose was probably the best player in the of VFL. He won four best and fairest cup and trophies by the time he's 26. Captain coach Wangaratta when he was 26 or 27. I said to him last year, "Why did you play at Wangaratta Rovers?" I knew what he was going to say. He said, "Because I got." 800 pounds, that makes four times as much. I went to Shepparton for 800 pounds. And you got your jobs out of the paper. And it was in um, the classified section of the Sporting Globe. And there'd be three and four pages after the grand final had been played uh, where it might have been Rapenia, playing coach required, state age, playing position, remuneration required, and job, uh, job required. Now, there would be stacks of them. And you read down, a lot of them, well, in Shepparton's case, where I went to in 19... I went 1960, actually. Uh, it had £800. It had £800 at Tongala, so they actually gave the price they were going to pay. And um, so they were, I, they, I wrote letters away to both of those clubs and also Gan Main, although I didn't put how much I wanted because I didn't know how to ask for a price. Shepparton came back. The other ones never even rang me up or spoke to me. Did you see Shepparton in the paper? Is that how you... That's how I got it. Sorry, where did the interest come that you wanted to coach? Oh, everybody wanted to coach. Really? Everybody. Well, they're getting £10. They go up the bush, they get £40. That's a playing coach. That's a playing coach. It wasn't £40. Now, Les Lintoff, number 29, he went to Gan Main. And this was six years before I went up there. He'd got £25 a week, I think it was, which was pretty big money because he would have only been getting 3 and £4, pound, I suppose, in 1952, his last season at Richmond, along that line. So everybody did. So what like, look at Ron Clegg went up there. He won the Brownlow. Next minute, he's up there playing. He came back a year or two later. He coached Walker, I think it was. But everybody did. And because, as I said, like, you look at... You ever get a chance to look at the honour boards in different clubs around the bush? You look up there, just see... Oh, Laurie Nash. Tommy Layer. Laurie Nash did kind of thing. He coached the second club in the country. That's the way they all went. Well, when you look at... In my time, which was a lot later, um, Billy Stephen was captain of Victoria one year. following year, he's playing coach of Yarrawonga. Bobby Rose has said won four Copelands, playing coach of Wang Rovers. Neville Waller, he was uh, sent out back in Collingwood's uh, premiership team. And uh, coach of Wangaratta. Uh, Jimmy Dean, played with the Tigers, won the McGarry, might have won two. He was uh, playing coach of Middleford. Vinnie Williams, these are, these are the people who played another five years. 
I remember saying to a fellow up in Chevron, Graham Eon, I O N, Graham Eon. He went up to Tamora, 23. He's a half forward flanker for Victoria. At 23, he was half forward flanker. The following year, he was playing with Tamora up in the Riverina. Everybody went. And the clubs never stopped them because they probably felt that they were uh, denying them the chance to make a big dollar. They fought like crazy to keep them, mm. but in the end, they would go. They might, yeah, Did long the line. Keep you? No, no, I'd been dropped off the list. So I had a year uh, playing with Richmond Amateurs. So that was 59? Yeah, 1959, right. I played at Richmond Amateurs, which was a Sunday com competition. Right. I got £10 a week playing there. Same as what I was getting if I was playing in um, uh, Richmond, seniors. So you jumped from £10 a week to, to how much as coach? At Chevron? Yeah. 40. Four times as much. Well, and also your work. And I was yeah. probably getting, I don't know, it might have been 10, 15 pound a week probably as a printer. Right. Yeah, I'm a printer. See, I printed, I was a printer most of my life. Right. Yeah. Did you want to leave Richmond? Oh, no. I read it in the paper. I've been dropped off the list. You yeah. At the end of the season? The end of the season, no, the start of the next season. Oh, right. Yep. Yeah. First week, I trained all the practice matches. Yep. Yeah. Right. And I played 14 of the 18 games of previous year. I pick up the paper on a Monday because I used to have the lists. They'd have the players, uh, old, new, yes. omitted. Yep. Yeah. And that was it. I was, yeah, they hadn't told me. I read the paper. Didn't I, Dale? But I left the Tigers after playing 14 of the 18 games. Did anyone speak to you? No. So I say that. So you didn't speak to you when you were down there much longer, didn't you? Did you want to move to the club? Nobody came up to you today? Oh, well, they do a bit, I suppose. Thanks, mate. Thank you for that. She's marvellous, isn't she? She should get paid 800 pounds. She, she gets out a day, mate. She gets out a day. So you read that you weren't no longer on the Richmond list. Yeah. Were you playing a high quality football to think that you were still going to think home? Oh, uh, well, well, I, I played all the practice play. matches and I just thought I'd be in the back pocket for the start of the season. Yeah. And, um, Did they ever give a reason? No. I went down there and they just said, oh, no, we just decided this or whatever, whatever. So you actually went to the pub and said... I went down, yeah. I'm not... Yeah, probably to pick up something that I might have left down there, boots or something like that. Yeah. And then that was the first inclination that I had that I wouldn't be playing when I picked up the paper. And then you went to Richmond rich Amateurs? Well, I actually thought I'd play Saturday and Sunday. Different people used to do that and pick up two lots of £10. And I played down at Warrigal for one game. And then the Richmond Amateurs, uh, which was a Sunday competition, they called them Amateurs, but they weren't. They were very highly paid. Yeah. It was a Sunday competition. you probably heard of that. Mm -hmm. it's a, it was a very rough competition. They had the uh, Montague, uh, Carlton Royals, Carlton Stars, Kentenden, yes. Richmond, they had Northwest, had a Footscray team. It was a very, a very, a lot of betting, a lot of betting on the game, and a lot of teams that have a lot of uh, former, uh, say, VFL players or association players and stuff like that. And we won the premiership. But I, I played one game with Warrigal, and then I found out that they found out, or they said that you weren't allowed to play two games at the weekend. Uh, but one of the competition might have been my competition. Might have been their competition. Might have been the Latrobe Valley. Yeah. I can't remember. I thought, well, I only live in Richmond. Like I had milk bar in Richmond. Yeah. yeah, so I wasn't going to be trapping down the bush to get £10 a week when I can get £10 a week playing with uh, Richmond Amateurs. Yeah, we won the premiership. In fact, then I played one game with East Malvern. You went back to East Malvern? Uh, only one game, the grand final. We won that as well. So I won two, yeah, won two premierships in the one year. That would have been pretty close together, too. That would have been maybe on the same week? Or... Oh, yeah, might have been week after. I don't know. You were just able to go back to East Melbourne? Yeah, well, they'd actually, I'd had to have been signed during the year. I wasn't going to play a game. You didn't have to even, uh, say, play enough games to 
uh, register you, or, but as long as I signed by the end of, of the, the 30th of June or whatever, uh, and, which was a bit of a shame because I felt a bit embarrassed. My brothers played there, and I was a East Malvern person prior to going down there, but it was a bit, yeah, I, I, yeah, I often think about it. It was a bit sort of embarrassing to play there after being a league player the previous year and put somebody out who'd been playing all the year, if you know what I mean. Yeah, along that line. But I was, regi- I was, what do you call it? Um, I didn't do anything wrong as far as the rules go. Right. Yeah. When you went to, um, to coach up in the bush? Up in the bush. Did you have to have an injury? Yeah. They came down and spoke to me for a start. Was it just, did they have other people to speak to on the show? Uh, yep, I went back. Uh, well, the president came down. Uh, what did you write in your letter? Oh, I just said that uh, no one took me happy. And I gave my age and my job. Did you have to give reasons why you can be a successful coach or something like that? Oh, not to any great extent. Yeah. No, I can't even remember that to any great extent. But Jack Edwards came down. FJ Edwards, who would have bought and sold every AFL administrator that I've ever met in my life. By a mile. Demented about country football, demented about the Shetland Football Club. Left no stone unturned. Yeah, oh, I loved him. Loved that man. Yeah, I was coach uh, the Shep uh, for six years in the early 60s. Yeah and playing coach, and uh, we won three premierships in a row. Yeah. Where did he sign you up? Well, he came down one Sunday because he couldn't get over because he'd come to my shop, come to my milk bar, and I saw him sitting at the front. I didn't have a clue who he was. And Sunday, there's not too many cars going up and down, but he's sitting looking in the shop. And I didn't actually, well, the shop was just jam-packed because we had one of those shops where children, like the youth used to come in. Right. We had, oh, God, Christ. We had just jam-packed shop. Like, and he probably couldn't believe what he was seeing. They were just in, like that. Yeah, jam-packed. Be 30, 40 people in the shop. It was like a club. And uh, he came in, and he leant on the counter down the end, and then he started talking to me, and he told me who he was. And then we have made arrangements for me to go to Shepparton next week, take my uh, beautiful wife, and probably discuss different things. Then they might have made a decision whether they're going to get me or somebody else. I'm not quite certain. Along that line. Did you think that you, you said before that everyone wanted to coach? Did you think you could coach? Well, yes, I did. Uh, mainly because I thought if other people can do it, I can do it. And when you saw so many people who had actually uh, taken on the coaching and they weren't any real big brains, the thing you've got to do is got to talk. I made a point of doing a public speaking course, which was a Dark Nicky course, which I recommend to everybody, even Rick Bartlett. The Dark Anaki course is a, a sales course, and it's um, public speaking, and there's three books involved. How to win friends and influence people, how to stop worrying and start living, public speaking and effective English, along that line, three books. And you do a 13-week course, and there might be 30-odd people in the, in the course, and you get up and you do a two-minute speech in front of all these people. Mm-hmm. And uh, they tell you what you've got to talk about the next week, and you've got to say... Uh, prepared and they talk and they tell you where you went wrong and everybody doesn't know everybody else yeah that yeah, was very 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 good probably the uh yeah. I, I i try and encourage everybody to do it so the course is still available yeah still available since 1936 37 it's american and it's in every major city in the world very very good in fact public speaking should be uh, compulsory in schools it's very confident building and they should have people just doing exactly that, exactly what the Dark Unnecky course did. And as I say, it, uh, it was only once a week. And it'd probably be, it'd probably go for 
three or four hours. So it wasn't so it was long. There's not a great deal of preparation as well, but you read the books. I've got the books here now. Marvelous books. Marvelous books. I've reread them. Reread, 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 read them. Read. In fact, I've bought I've bought the, the book How to Stop Worrying and Start Living and probably given it to half a dozen people over the years. Yeah, marvelous book. Of all your coaches, before you coached Richmond, did any of them have a major influence on your I think everyone. Yeah, I did. I thought they were all good. I had Dalby Panham, yes. uh, Maxi Oppie, and then um, Alan McDonald. I thought they were all good. Mm-hmm. But I was probably very coachable because uh, I just believed what the coach system was gospel. I was in shock when anybody else would, would talk about a coach. And I can remember some little groups talking about the coach. And I, I, I just couldn't understand that because I, I put I mean, him on such a pedestal. I mean, disagree with what he said? The coach? Sorry, is that oh, they're probably picking at him some oh, way. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and I can't even remember what they're talking about, but I can remember. I was really uh, most upset when I found players uh, weren't doing the right thing by the team, like when different ones would have parties or go out on a Friday night. There's also a respect thing. That's what I would have believed, and also for your teammates. I can remember thinking, well, see, I would be squeaky clean in all those areas, Um, and even when I played at East Melbourne, when the players would go to the pitches on a Friday night, we played on Saturday, we'd go up the shop where they all used to hang out, which was a milk bar, a hamburger shop, and then they go across the pitches across the road. Well, I'd be there until they all went to the pitches, and I'd turn around and get run home, go home, and get to bed early because they had football tomorrow. That was me. Now, not that I'm saying they were told what they should be doing, what they shouldn't be doing, but that's the way they went. But I just thought you have to go to bed and have an early night because you've got the game tomorrow. Uh, but they're not getting home all that late, and there was no such thing as drinking unless I went to a party. Uh, that was because it was six o'clock closing, so it wasn't as though they could go to a hotel or go to a disco or anything like that, because they weren't around at the time. But the pitchers would come out at 11 o'clock, they'd go in at uh, 8 o'clock, and they'd come out at 11 o'clock, because there was always two shows and the nibble, so you'd always be at 11 o'clock, but so there was a, I thought that was too late to go to bed. But I was really in shock when I knew that some of the players down at, uh, say, Richmond, during my playing time, didn't do the right thing by the rest of the team. Yeah, it really disappointed me. And when I heard them, even people around the club, even, say, maybe... Uh, maybe committee men or workers criticise somebody, just say I'll be Yeah. because he was a former Collingwood person yeah, totally because I would have never done that yeah. mm. what was we talking about Panem, just briefly Hoppy as a coach, what was his strengths? well he was a former player he was my vice captain and he more or less went straight from being vice captain yeah. playing and the following year he is actually uh, the coach so it was probably a tough thing on his part uh, but I can't see anything that he did wrong. We didn't have a very, very good team. Uh, and in each case, I suppose, um, I, would, I would say whatever the coach says to me was made sense, like, like as how hard he trained us and whatever, whatever. Same with Alan McDonald came down. He'd actually coached South Bendigo to about four or five premierships right. up in the uh, Bendigo League, which is a very strong competition. And did everyone know that? You know, like yep. Simon yep. Newey's his, his yep. career. Yeah. Uh, Maxi only, Maxie only got one year, mm. which is probably not fair, uh, because really I couldn't have, I wouldn't have thought the blame would have gone on him, the side not doing that overly well. I can't remember where that finished now, to be quite honest. Uh, uh, not difficult to find out, of course. But all the time I was at Richmond, we never looked like making finals. We finished fifth and sixth in successive years. So you didn't have a strong team? Is that, I mean, is that, what was the reason that... that oh, we didn't have a strong team. Yeah. No, well, compared was, to other teams. What team. were you Ah, oh, that... I really wouldn't know at that particular time. I thought, to be quite honest, that we messed around too much with the ball. Yeah. Like even back then, I used to think that uh, Melbourne style was just so much a, 
about anybody else's because I can remember being in the back pocket and having different views on what things should have been doing. Uh, kicking the ball quicker and more direct. And I can remember us getting the ball four and five times in a row. And then somebody from the Melbourne team would get the ball on the half-back line, come charging through and belt the ball a million miles. And, like, we've handled the ball four times, and they've got to say the same, more value, get the ball down quickly. Yeah. We had a big fellow uh, around the goals called Bob Johnson, who at that time was 6'6". Six, six. Big man, big strong man, a very good player. Very, very, very good player. So he like he gets the ball down one out. He doesn't have to... And when he gets the ball, he's 20 metres from goal. It is so elementary. <laughs> to me, it's so elementary. I say that now. But uh, I thought that we... Like, I just felt that we probably were... Uh, too intent on kicking the ball to a player on the lead all the time. Yeah. At any stage, did you think you'd play finals football when you played Richmond? Never. Never thought we'd make finals. I always knew that we'd be going along to watch Melbourne play uh, Collingwood or Essendon or teams like that. Never, ever thought we'd make finals. That might be now our hope, but really, being realistic, as I said, we finished fifth and sixth. There was only a four. Uh, but at the end of the year, uh, that's where we finished up. It wasn't as though we're making a challenge because it just worked out that way. I think fourth might have been the big gap in front of fifth. Yeah, I would think that. And was that the common thinking amongst the club itself? I don't know. That was the way I felt anyway. Yeah. We had some good little players. We had some really good players, as I say. Uh, when you think of, um, say, Roy Wright, who was probably the best player in the competition, with Bobby Rose, so were two my, my two best players in the competition. Uh, we had Kevin Dillon on the half-back line, who was strong and very, uh, very dashing. Uh, Billy Wilson, who was the rover in the state team. And as I said, Roy Wright, who was a, was a first ruck. Uh, Joe Potter was a big, strong man, a centre-half forward. Beautiful kick, goal kicker. Ronnie Branton was a terrific player. Ronnie Branton was a terrific player. Yep, I remember him really well. And he came down the same time as me, but he played from the word go. Like he played first game of the year up from Maryborough. And his very first day, he made the first and whatever. Yeah, and as you know, won three best of various. All in a row. All in a row, was it? Yeah. Uh, very fine. Um, there would only be, I, I guess, a few people who you played with and then subsequently coached. Mm. I don't know if you know anyone who comes to mind. I'll assume Devil Crow will be one. Mm. Um, Pat Roger, Canane. Roger Dean. Roger Dean. Freddie Swift. Freddie, yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. yeah. Uh, I think Alan Richardson, I trained with him all the year, but could put up a list because his first game was in 1959, I would think. Oh, right. Yeah, so I was probably expecting to be playing with him. Might have been Barry Cameron as well. I can't quite remember that. Barry might have even been playing with me. I can't quite remember. We could check that up very, very quickly, of course. Yeah. So when I came back, I was um, not greatly concerned uh, because I've been away for six years. Had changed? Had, any, had, had the club changed that you had noticed in those six years? We'd gone from Hunt Road to Melbourne Cricket Ground for a start. Was that a good thing? Oh, I thought it was, yeah. Why is that? Uh, I just simply feel it's a better environment, yeah. bigger ground, and uh, I know that when I went to Shepherd and I followed Norm Smith's style of coaching. Because? Kicking the ball long, not stuffing around. Getting the ball down. I remember people up there used to say to me, gee, you've improved news kicking. He was about six foot four, great big, long, skinny, red-headed bloke. Gee, he kicked a lot of goals for us. Fantastic. He's only kicking from 20 yards out. Like, like you know what I mean? Because we'd kick it, we had a fellow leading up, and they kick it over his head until we're new, just go across like that. So elementary, once again. It is so basic, simple. And... Similar to what Rewalt and, and uh, what's his name did. And when I went to Collingwood, 
uh, Renee Kink lead up the field, Peter Moore leading the goal square. Peter Moore kicked 87 goals for the season. Luckily, he wasn't recognised as a goal kicker, but he's kicking from 20 metres out. And they're saying, I've improved his kicking. He couldn't miss, he'd fall over. If he kicked it wrong, it'd still go through the goal, wouldn't it? You know what I mean? He's a brilliant mark, big new, he had a funny old action. Yeah, but he just kicked goals because he's only kicking from 12, 15 metres out. Yeah, so that's, that's, that was it. So Melbourne Cricket Ground was going to suit us right down to the ground. So your style of play, your style of coaching as well? Oh, yeah. Pick your ground and... Well, Melbourne's um, nearly as wide as it is long. As you, no, 160. So really, like, it's only 80 metres from the centre circle. So if somebody kicking the ball out, runs his 10 metres and he kicks a 70 metre kick, it's going to stand in the centre circle. It is so once again... It's very simple. Yeah, and we trained hard. Yeah, criticised for training hard, but we kept on winning. And, like, the people who, who criticise you are the ones who probably sit in the grandstand watching you run around the cup. Did you ever have to defend yourself? No. Nah. Well, I probably did, but I didn't. Who cares? Like, like we had a stack of teams who used to root around with the ball. They, honestly, they're like the South Melbournes and the Fitzroys and the Footscrays. And the Geelongs and the Melbournes, they used to do that all the time. Gilders, a lot of them used to do that same stuff. Yeah. And um, you'd get a lot of people like in the media who wouldn't really understand what you're at. But who cares? They would say what they like. I never, ever, as you probably know, I never ever uh, talk back or try and make excuses for yourself. What the heck? They've got the last word, can't they? So you can say something, they just go over the top of it. Then you don't keep on coming back, coming back, it's crap. Yeah. yeah. Why did you come back to Richmond? Well, Richmond... They you. Yeah. Because you were successful in the show. Yeah, yeah, we won three in a row. Who approached you? Um, well, there was uh, Ray Dunn, Graham Richmond, Ron Carson all come up to see me. Right. Yeah. All they, the months. Yeah, they come up. Yeah, but they've been coming up a couple of times, and I was on the phone to them. That type of stuff. And there was a lot of speculation that I wouldn't come back because we were settled in the Chepparton. Right. Had a nice house, little children, uh, good job, but really, I suppose the opportunity to coach league football. Uh, and um, when I, what I got in Shepparton was 800 pounds, as you know, as I've told you. I got that for the six years. They never upped my money at any stage. When I came back uh, and settled down, got a job, and was uh, looking for a house, Graham Richmond then said, oh, we'll pay you the same as what you was getting up at Shepparton, $1,600. Just decimal currency just turned over. So that was what I got my first year, $1,600 for the year. Not each week. Regardless of if you're talking to a premiership or anything like never that. Got a cent from, never got a cent from anybody yeah. with all the premierships we won. Really? I got a, a bit of a, a rise. The most money I ever got at Richmond, and your dad will tell you, was $8,000. The same as what the players were getting. So in 11 years, it went from 1600 to, say, to three to five. $8,000 was off the, from what I'm understood, yeah. and I didn't bother to check it, the four leading players got, yeah. which was... Uh, Royce Hart, Kevin Cheedy, Kevin Bartlett, and Francis Burke. But um, I tell you what I did get. I got two suits from Rich Farley for winning one of the premierships. That's the only thing in all the time that I was there that I got anything extra. And never felt I deserved it. It wasn't something that I even expected. I never thought about, what about that, we won the premiership. It was never even a thought. But Reg Farley said, come out to the factory and I'll give you something. He gave me two suits. Yeah. So that, I thought I was... Oh, walking on water at that stage, getting two suits, but never, as far as uh, a bonus for that, never even entered my head. At what stage of the season did you then think about next season? Say you win the Premiership in 67. When do you start to focus on 68? Uh, we would start training six weeks later, and that would be down at the Richmond ground. Uh, we would let the players 
go to gyms if they wanted to because the weights we had down there weren't really adequate. But not only that, I felt that going away for somewhere else might have been better. So if they wanted to go to the Oasis or to Phillies, and if anybody lived at Frankston, they could go and work at the gym down there. But then we would have a, uh, a period over Christmas time, maybe a fortnight where they didn't do anything, but they had to run a, a hundred miles during, hundred miles, I think it was, during January. Training started the first week in Feb, so they were expected to have done that on an honour system. But we had different people taking, uh, like Bill Baromeo, which you probably heard about, would take uh, people like your father, and Daryl come in, and quite a few of the boys who ran pro, a lot of them did, and even if they didn't run pro, they would uh, probably train with the pro runners, like in Bill Baromeo's case, he ran as a pro himself at the stage, so he had a little bit of understanding of it, uh, but if they, we would say they wanted to go to the gym, nearly, well we felt that they should go to the gym, might be the Golden Bowl down at, uh, at um, Gamwell, right. yeah, anywhere where they'd like to go, which is going to suit them to get away from the place, but then we bring them down first week, and then the first week of training, I can tell you what, the first week, we train on the very first uh, of, say, the first Monday of Feb. It might be the first or second or whatever. And they would do a time trial around the tan. Now, we'd do it as... I don't know if we didn't do a slow jog. I think we might only just jog across the tan. We might have done a slow jog and then do a time trial around the tan. On the... Wednesday night, that was on the Monday, because we trained Monday, Wednesday, Friday uh, in the early part before the practice matches came along. The second night, we would do 10 440s against the clock, against the watch. And the third night, we would do 22 20s. So that was what our train, that's what we did for the first week, probably in nearly every year I was there, practically. You know what I mean? And now, you may have read sometimes where they've, people said, we've done that on the one night. That was never, ever. And my memory has never been clouded with alcohol. Yeah, and your dad's the same. Because he's even read articles which people have said. He said, that is amazing. And I've actually thought sometimes when I've read these things, I thought, I wish I'd had thought of that at the time. Never in my head. But as I say, I know exactly when I hear people say how long we train for. We're never on the ground after 7 o'clock. They've seven o'clock, they would shut, and then the boys would often go and do things themselves. And that was a great part about Richmond. Because you'd get, say, Francis Burke and maybe Brian Wood belting the ball at each other from about 20 metres apart. And you might, or 10 metres apart, just bashing the ball, which is called bash ball. You're standing there, bang, and you have to catch it in your hand, that sort of stuff. Uh, and there might be Kevin Cheedy with Mervyn Kane, or it might be somebody like Billy Brown with Kevin Bartley, might have shots of goal, something like that. So a lot of times they weren't expected to be out there, but a lot of them would say out doing things that they wanted to do. Yeah. Did anyone else approach you to coach other than Richmond? When I was at Chevron? Not a chairman. No. I'll tell you, I, have many, I would have had 10 people speak to me when I was coaching Richmond. Is this before you won a premiership? Oh, no, we won a premiership. Okay, so second year. About, yeah. At any stage during your coaching time at Richmond, were you ever close to leaving Richmond? Never. 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 No. Just never thought about it. People would ask me. Yeah. They would ring me. Sorry. Yeah. Are you interested? Yeah. Yeah. If I had a stack of people say that. Yeah. yeah. How would you sum up yourself as a player? Uh, as a player, oh, just a solid tryer. Yep, probably uh, height was a disadvantage, I suppose, and uh, pace. Yep, so they were a couple of areas uh, that probably was I'd be lacking in, but I just saw an honest battler, I would think. Yeah. Last question. I know you have a lot of quotes in your life or mottos, that kind of thing. Is there one that you always use or that you, you live by or you always... Or is there a particular motto or creed that 
you would pass on? Oh, well, I say, probably jokingly, every day's a great day. You don't believe me, try missing one. Yeah, so in other words, I, I say that all the time now, wherever I am. Because really, like, so many people have got a grouch on the world, got a terrible attitude, and I just think that, uh, unfortunately, you're dead for a long time. And so why don't you enjoy what you're doing? Like, let's face it, Red, you've seen it happen even at your young age. You've got so many people, no matter what job they had, they would bitch. They could be Elm McPherson's minder. Or, in a girl's case, it could be Brad Pitt's minder. And they'd bitch about the job. And when I come to think of my life as, a, say, working out there, I never had a job I didn't like. And that just comes about because you like people and you like working. Yep. yep. You've got to be busy, 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 busy. Like every job I've ever had. And I did leave the printing trade from time to time. I was a British labour. It was a great job. And when I delivered papers, I loved it. Delivered, I delivered papers for about five years. Even when I started working, I still go in, deliver papers before I went to work. And that was a great job. I delivered green groceries uh, because you used to ride the push bike on a Saturday morning uh, and you'd have the, the banana box on the, on the, on the, between the handlebars and taking the people's green groceries. You've got to do things to make dollars, sell the papers after school from time to time, stuff like that. But I always did two and up to three paper rounds as I say, from around about, ooh, I would say 11 or 12, when I was 11 or 12, to the time that uh, I was even probably second year apprentice, 16, 17. Yes, but then when, as I say, at a milk bar, love the milk bar, even though we work, ooh, Christ, 12, 14 hours a day, seven days a week. Yeah, it was great. Met a lot of lovely people. Made a lot of friends. I was down in Bridge Road, Richmond. Yeah, no, it was... Uh, but, uh, I think being very family is a big help. You've got a beautiful, loving family and very close. Oh, I think it's lovely. What's one thing you learned from football? Is there a main thing that... Well, you only get out what you put in, I guess. But also, you learn so much about football. And I even say now, hey, look, there's no race colour creed in football netball club. There's no rule for the rich and rule for the poor in the football netball club. No matter what school you went to, what car you drive, or how big a house you live in, when you get down to the ground, everybody is an equal. Hey, the camaraderie, the respect, and the getting to know the life disciplines where you might be only a youngster to older folk, to parents, to grandparents, and there's history and tradition that you come from football club is just so special. And I don't think people understand that. And I've just finished reading Polly Farmer's book, and he said, even though he was a boy from an orphanage, and he loved the orphanage actually, he said, when I got down to football club, it was like the home I never had. In a lovely way of putting it, I thought it was really lovely. I mentioned it today. I've been around taking Sacred Heart Mission for the footy training down around Reckling. And I said exactly that, because I know how a lot of those folk, underprivileged and maybe handicapped, physically and mentally handicapped in a lot of cases. And I just mentioned, because I know how they love to cross the white line in the same colours as each other. And I've been to some of those places when they're receiving their trophies and the boys broke down and cried because he's got the best clubman. He said, I went down and played my first game at 35 and people were calling me by my name. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, isn't that loving? Hey, people don't understand how important football is, particularly the community. As you know, that's what I do now. I go all over the place. Yeah, it's a bit disappointing that they don't get the, enough credit and enough help from a lot of people. Governments, council, AFL, disaster. Yeah, give nothing. Talk up what they do. Don't give anywhere near enough. I keep on saying, if, hey, if football was to be, say, cut out because of insurance problems, we would be building second and third stories on every jail in Australia. You realise that? That's how important it is.
to go and have a stupid question. Were you nervous with your first game as a coach? No, I don't think so. I suppose the practice match period and the fact that I coach here in, in the Golden Valley, I know a lot of the assistant coaches now haven't actually had their own team, but they've all had a good background, I guess, mm. but it's not their own team. And I suppose being a chairman in the early 60s there and coming down, uh, no, I, was, I don't think I was overly nervous. At which point in 1967 did you think that Richmond were a chance to win the flag? Were a good enough team? Yeah, I probably felt the same the previous year because the previous year, 66, really? uh, we actually were on the top of the ladder three weeks before the uh, finals and we lost two games in a row and never made the finals because there was only a final four, if you can remember, or so, you wouldn't remember, but there was only a final four. So we lost four games for the year. Four games for the year, so we're in with a big chance, but we never made the finals. Now that is freakish, isn't it? What lessons, 18 games. What lessons did, did they learn from that? Oh, well, I guess it might have been uh, that you got to win the premiership. Not much good, just win a lot of games. And uh, not to mess up on opportunities. I think that was probably an important thing. We had a lot of young players in our team, so that experience of the previous year's fine or a previous year being a good year yeah. might have been good but that was the first time the Tigers had made the finals for 20 years it was 1947 to 1967 and they hadn't won a premiership since 1943 which was war years yeah. yep, so it was uh, I often smile when I see people say oh, uh, that they're too young to win the premiership because you've seen a lot of young teams get up to win the premiership and uh, the baby bombers in 93 yeah. and five teenagers in their team yeah. so yeah, no, I, I felt reasonably confident, I, I guess, yeah. Can you tell me two or three things that vividly stand in your mind from the actual game? Either from the lead-up during the game or post-game. What, what are the, the quintessential moments that stay in your mind oh, I remember when you think back? Many, many, many things. I can remember before the game, talking to the players in the room, and it's only the 20 players and the runner and the coach. <clears throat> Nobody else is there, never ever was. And talking about different players where we've got to be aware of and I remember saying to Billy Barrett because he played on a boy called Wayne Costa who was a very good player but Billy used to beat him and uh, after 10 minutes they usually used to take Wayne Costa out the centre mm. and put Dennis Marshall who had actually done very well on Billy and I remember saying to Billy looking right into his face in front of all the players what's going to happen when they put Dennis Marshall on you you'll say get on top of Wayne Costa but they'll put Dennis Marshall now, what, how do you feel about that? And he didn't say anything for a long time. He just made me thinking, or, because I put the whole pressure on him. And I remember Michael Patterson saying, breaking the silence, saying, he can't wait to get at him. And everybody practiced, because he, this one just said, yeah. yeah. And that's exactly what happened. Billy was nearly the best man on the ground. Yeah. He probably played better when Dennis Marshall went on him than what he had played on Wayne Kloster. I remember that so well. That was one thing, mm. and uh, a lot of things you remember in that sure. particular match. I remember uh, Michael Patterson just doing such a good job because he had to replace Neville Crow in the first truck because Neville had got rubbed out in the previous match. Uh, I remember the well, the goals that big Johnny Ronaldson mm. kicked. I remember us giving away a couple of silly free kicks and things like that. And uh, I also remember Kevin. Kevin kicking that very vital goal right near the end of the game yeah. that uh, more or less sealed the whole thing. I remember Polly Farmer uh, having cramp at a vital time. Really? Yeah, and I often used to think about that because the racehorse hangs under pressure 
uh, uh, pacer gallops under pressure and mm. obviously this could be something like cramping might be something under the pressure that had been displayed during the course of the day. Yeah, yeah I, remember, I remember another time when they had a chance to kick a goal from a penalty free kick down the field yeah. and about five players, including John Scarlett, who was a very good player, were around the ball and somebody else took the kick, which was really uh, surprising. Yeah. Because it, you would have thought that everybody would have disappeared so the best kick could kick, mm. have a shot at goal. But the uh, other Geelong boy didn't kick a goal to right. kick the point. Yeah. And of course we all remember Freddie Swift taking that mark behind the goal, in front of the goal, on the point post, uh, on, the, uh, on the line or whatever. And when I coached Geelong, somebody mentioned that every day for the entire three years I lived down there. Was it behind or I was there and I saw it and all this sort of stuff. No, I, I, I got so many memories of that particular match and also the fact that it was our first premiership for 24 years and uh, naturally the first one that I was connected with as a uh, as a coach. Yeah. So is it your fondest then? Oh no, I never think that. Right. No, people often ask of the premierships you've been connected with, I surprise them because I say the premierships of Chapman were equally as important to me. Yeah, I do. Because I see how many people work so hard during the yeah. year and I see the people crying in the rooms after we won the premiership just with the emotion yeah. of the whole thing. But each one was special and probably, I don't know if every coach feels this way, but the first one was the first for 24 years and my first year. The second one, after we'd failed so dismally the following year, 68, where we finished uh, fifth or sixth, once again there's a four, never made the finals. And the following year when it was such a, a uh, year of, say, oh, disappointment to us. We just struggled to make the finals. Mm. We just got in. We had to win it from fourth position. And not too many clubs had ever done that. And every game, probably in the last, say, six or eight games was a semi-final. We lose one, we were out. And my father had died during the course of the year. Right. And um, I, there was uh, some terrible articles in the paper uh, due to different things, but about sacking Tommy Heafy and things like yeah. that. The day my father was buried, they had big headlines on the back page, Hafey for sack or something like that, written by Greg Hobbs. I remember it so well. And I was really disappointed in that sort of stuff. But the players, uh, I guess they might have rallied for me. Right. I really think they may have done that. I think that they just were never going to, say, toss a towel in or, or whatever. They just were going to give it their best shot. I was quite certain of that. So that was a really, really important one. Mm. Yeah, because it gave me a tremendous amount of satisfaction, particularly the way the papers had been uh, screaming for me, which was incidentally because I was a political, I was a I meeting a political sandwich between Ray Dunn and Kevin and um, Graham Mitchell, because they were they were loggerheads where they'd been great mates, all of a sudden they weren't, mm. and uh, because Graham was so supportive of me, and I just felt that Ray Dunn probably could have been feeding the stuff to the, yeah, along that line. In 73 it was a great grand final win because we'd probably been annihilated the previous year when we were the, the favourites to win that premiership, mm. 72. And to win that one it was nearly like revenge. Uh, and because to lose two in a row when you're the best side, or up near the best side would have been so devastating. And in 74 it was fantastic because uh, it was back to back mm. and sides had not been winning back to back for a long time 
And I can remember that one also very well because there was a lot of controversy. Uh, some of the remarks that people had made after Keith Gregg was made the Brownlow medal winner. And as a result, a lot of the people were against us. So I just felt that that was a really important one. Yeah, recently against the kangaroos. Mm. Yeah, really well. So, 69, especially in mid-year, sounded like a difficult year for you? Oh, very much so. Very much so. We lost five games in six games. Five games in six games we lost during the year. Yeah, for some reason or other, I'm not quite certain yeah. the reason why now. I can't think that. And that can happen, of course, yeah. particularly when you've got leading players out and uh, things just don't go your way and maybe we were a little bit expecting so much but it just didn't work. Yeah. So during that time, when you were saying when your father passed away, at any stage did you get help in respect to coaching during that period of time or were you able to... Did it, did it affect your coaching around about that stage? Oh, well, I didn't think so. No. I just get on with uh, life. You yeah. can't do much about that. And I suppose my father, who's been such a big influence on me, mm. Uh, probably would have expected me to continue uh, and just as normal I think he died on the Saturday morning we were playing Essendon so like yeah so uh, uh, but he coached that day oh yes yes yeah yeah that was a pretty tough yeah debut huh? yeah it was yeah no but um, I can remember these things but I also remember the tremendous amount of support that I got from the people at the club and particularly say the players yeah, yeah and I have I have heard players actually make mention that in the paper yeah. about the fact that Tommy has copped plenty and the players just really rallied. Because yeah. we had a lot, I was probably closer to players than most coaches get. Yeah. And a lot of people think that's not a good idea and they might have opinions on it. But I can remember when I was about to leave Shepparton to come down and coach Melbourne, coach in Melbourne, our old president Jack Edwards, who would buy and outsell every AFL official I've ever met in my life said to me, Tommy, a word of advice. No, no, a word of warning. You spend too much time with the players and not enough with the administrators and the board and stuff like that. He said, you've got to remember, they put you in the job, they keep you in the job. I said, Jack, if I've got to suck up to people to keep a job, I'd rather not have the job. I'm thinking that if you have success, well, they can't get rid of you. And I think that, well, the players are the ones where I've got the most contact with. And probably, I understand how everybody's so important around the place and that sort of stuff, but my job is with the players, that's mm. what I always felt. Yeah, but unfortunately, that is life. Lobbying is part of life, and a lot of people are very successful because of the people they know, not so much by their deeds. And I'm actually amazed at some of the people who are in top jobs, and why? Because nobody would know, but they know the right people. Yeah, yeah and everybody makes excuses for their failures and yeah. stuff like that, and if you look deeply, you think, holy cow, they should have done a lot better with what they've got there, yeah. Did your father see you in 67 coach Richmond to the Premiership? Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, they, they were wrapped out of their brain. Yeah. Yeah, they were great support. Yeah, yeah they so were, there was still that, there was that ability where they were able to see you coach to oh, the yes, Yeah, oh, mum was demented about the football. Yeah, she yeah. really was. And, and uh, so was uh, my aunties as well. Yeah. I can remember after the 67 grand final, uh, we're down at the Richmond social rooms, well they weren't social rooms, they were just rooms sort of stuff. Our, our rooms out at Richmond were probably the worst in the competition, but I felt that was good for us. I didn't think you, I don't, still don't think you need all the flash, uh, the carpet and the chrome and all that sort of stuff. Our rooms were really ordinary stuff, but we had great times, and I think because we didn't have a social club, it kept our players together. Mm. They had to go there. A lot of players go to the social club for a while, but they eventually leave and go their own way. Mm. They're not there for the entire night. 
whereas in our case we would have a, a function probably every fortnight and everybody went. When I say everybody, every one of the players and their wives, every one of the committee and their wives, every one of the people who worked around the club and their wives. So it was a very close, very, very close uh, group and I think that was one pretty important. Did you know in 67 that the grand final was going to be Swift's last game? This is his final match. No, but you would have nearly thought that. Sure. He was captain that. Yes, he was captain that year, yeah. but he was uh, a real veteran, and we played him during the course of the year on the ball. Yeah, we didn't play him full back because he used to beat the most of the full full forwards, but the better ones were too big for him, right. maybe too quick for him, yeah. and we struggled at full back for quite some time. Mm. And right at the last minute, oh, with about three games to go, we decided to put him back. Yeah, we knew that like we just struggled. People who were put there had uh, maybe a few deficiencies, like mightn't be strong enough, tall enough, quick enough for the position, or wasn't experienced enough for it. But we weren't having success there. Mm. And so we thought, well, instead of dropping our captain, which you probably could have at that stage, because he was on half-forward flank, mm. and it's not his position, really, more or less uh, ruck rope and change him with Alan Richardson. Yeah, so but we put him back to full-back, and it was a amazing success. I thought if we dropped our captain, or he struggled in some way, it could, sort of a reflection with the rest of the players, it, it didn't have to, because we played him at full-back, and he did it naturally a great job. He's yeah. a great kick, very well liked. So I didn't know that he was going to retire, but I think that, that was, I don't think that was a major thing. From watching the match, um, the, the great memory I have from watching the videotape of 67 is you've been carried around the ground Hmm? on the shoulders yeah. of, the, of, of the players, a lap of honour almost. Yeah. yeah. Um, do, you, do you have memories of that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was such a unique thing, and they're, and they're actually running with you on, yeah. on their shoulder. Not, 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 like, not nah. like a walk, it's nah. a full-on run. Yeah. Did yeah. you think, you know, I'm going to fall off here? No, no, I didn't. No, I don't think it would have worried me. Yeah. <laughs> what a great thrill. Yeah, yeah, it is a tremendous thrill. I can remember, uh, not so much that game, but other grand finals were won, yeah. more or less... Uh, when we won the premiership, just that's expected. We've only done what we set out to do. Don't get excited. Don't make a fool of yourself. That's what I thought when I got up, when we were sitting in the box, and the other people sitting in the box, more or less, yeah, and congratulated me, shook hands, and you see with the smile and the love and that hat. By the time I got down to the ground, I was a raven lunatic. I didn't want to be that way. I remember, because I've often seen people do things, I think, oh, what a poser, what a poser. Yeah. Yeah, because I'm one of those people, like, when the people kick goals and they jump up and wave to the crowd and all, they go, oh, give us a break. It's all right in soccer. They kick one goal every five weeks. In our game, we're kicking 30 goals a game. And I think, holy cow, you see fellas just pulled out of contests, they've missed tackles, they've dropped marks, they're kicked into the man of the mark, then they kick a goal, they run around as though, oh, then that's for the end of the season as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and as I say, I tried not to be, but honestly, if something... Just gets into you, I suppose. Yeah, you're so you're so excited, of course. Yeah. In '69, Roy Hart never trained with the club that season. Yeah, entire year. How did that affect the team? Oh, well, or you I didn't think it. Well, it didn't affect me. Not at all. Now, whether it affected the rest of the players, I'm not quite sure. Didn't affect any game plan or anything like that. Nah, but the game plan was it's in our forward and we kicked the ball to Roy along that line. I don't think much was going to change then. It was probably I'm not quite certain if he had a good year or not completely, like when I look back over the entire year, yeah. uh, but that was to be expected with the way the National Service was. Yeah. We had other players who had gone off and, of course, Royce is such an important part of our play, our game plan and or just our team, mm. 
Uh, Kevin Sheedy was in the National Service, mm. and Johnny Perry was in the National Service, and other boys like that. So you couldn't do a thing about it. That was just the luck of the draw. And you just accept that. You're pleased that he was uh, training over in South Australia, yeah. and he was able to play with us on a Saturday. Yeah. After the failure of 68, which I just want to know, do you have any idea why the club no, failed in 68, in a sense? Um, have you been able to pinpoint it? I felt that probably we were too slow on the back line. I really remember that. Uh, it might have been a player or two being hurt, or they, the players we replaced them with probably just didn't have the real initial acceleration, mm. which is something that we pride ourselves on, playing on, off the back line, mm. like playing on very quickly, uh, either by handball or running around the man on the mark mm. when they took a mark things like that, but we didn't have anybody who could probably do that, and I think that was probably one of the reasons. But also, we might have got ahead of ourselves as well. Okay, so uh, I think our Christmases came at once. Yeah, I think that might, I think we probably felt that, oh, we'll do it right once the finals come along, but we never got in the finals. Yeah. And then in 69, you got in the finals. So yeah. Was there, was there, did you notice something different in the players from the previous year? Oh, uh, not or so much. you were lucky to get in? Yeah, we were final. very lucky to get in. Yeah. But were you lucky I, to get I say, the grand final? Yeah, oh, my word. As I said, like, we could have got beaten one game yeah. in the last six and we're out of it. We're out of contention. And we just had players who rose to the occasion. I remember they're playing Carlton, you know, the team that's probably the best side of the competition. Mm. And we're out at Princess Park and we're getting beaten. And we put Billy Barrett to full forward. He kicked eight goals on West Loss. He had eight kicks. No matter where he got the ball, it was going to go for a goal. He just dominated. Dominated. And that probably set us up to put him in other positions, oh. of course, like uh, or take him in, into full forward in the grand final, which we did. I think he get three goals in the grand final also on West Loss. Can you uh, tell me, say, two memories, that's all, of the 69 grand final that stay in your mind? Of the 69 grand final? Whether it be a pre-match or during the match? Oh, I remember it really well. I remember Eric Moore taking the mark and then getting crunched. We are two goals down, I think. At uh, just before three quarter time, he kicks the goal, which more or less put us only a goal down. The last quarter coming up, the most important quarter for the entire the entire season. Did you know we had 73 kicks in that last quarter, the most kicks any side had during the course of the entire year in a quarter. Carlton had 36 in the most important quarter. That's the least number of kicks that any side had had for the entire season in the grand final. I think there were seven players where Carlton never got a kick in the last quarter. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and if you can remember, uh, Rex Hunt and Graham Bond both kicked goals in the last quarter after coming off the bench. I remember it really well, really, really well. We dominated the last quarter, as you can probably understand. Yeah, so uh, I got really... You have big memories of that game. Yeah. Billy Barrett uh, kicked a couple of goals once again. Yeah, I think it was the one who held up the ball. He took the mark, went back. And, yeah, yeah, but that was uh, it. Was just a, a really powerful performance. Really powerful performance. But as I said, we just dominated so much so with those statistics that I mentioned. I mem remember it so well. Yeah. Did you remember anything pro pro prior to the match that you, you did speech wise? Yeah, I do. Well, not only that match, the start of the finals that particular year, we were playing Geelong in the first semi, and uh, they were the favourites to beat us. I got Percy Serra to come in and speak to the players. Now, nobody ever used to get into the room outside the 20 players and the runner. But I've got Percy Serra in the room. I don't know what he's going to say, 
and Percy Sheridan was a very eccentric and a very, say, fiery sort of a character. And I didn't tell him what to say, but I just asked him would he speak to the players. And it was really quite amazing because he spoke to the players about Tommy Hafey. Tommy Hafey can't talk about Tommy Hafey. But he talked about my passion and my love of the players and my love of my football club and things that I've had to go on through through the course of the year. It was really amazing. He really knocked me over. I nearly had a tear in my eye because he's such a... Uh, it was completely different to what I thought he was going to talk about. He didn't say get out there and do any of this. He just more or less talked for quite some time. It was a lesson. Now, that day, we beat Geelong in the first semi and they were the favourites by 20 goals, 118 points. They kicked five goals in the last quarter to go from two to seven to make their score respectable. And that was a terrific save to get the momentum and the confidence going. The following week we played, uh, or two weeks later we played Collingwood and we beat them convincingly. And so like we just had so much momentum going up, probably just because of the start of that particular... Yeah, it was really quite amazing. Yeah, and I could see when the door opened and there were different people who were looking in and seeing Percy there and you could see the look on their face. They weren't too pleased that somebody else was allowed in the room. Yeah, it was really amazing. Eh? In a sanctum. Yeah, so I remember Ian Owen playing on the half-back line, and he played so well, but everybody played well, but he played on Ken Williams the first game, he played on Ian Graham the second game, and he played on Brent Croswell the third game, they were very good players, and Ian was never low at his colours, they hardly kicked a goal on him, yeah, so it was just one of those things, so many things like that, Michael Green was sensational, yeah. Kevin Bartlett was sensational, there were so many, yeah. the Burke Barrett Clay and stuff like that, that was the centre line at that particular time, yeah, and there was just, there was... It's hard, you don't like to really, uh, say, dwell on one player, mm. even come to a point, because it was such a, a great team, great team, a great team effort. Mm. Johnny Rolson once again got into the team and um, played really well also. Mm. Yeah. Uh, what was it like meeting the Queen? Well, that was probably the start of our downfall, because unfortunately <laughs> there was 40 minutes break at half-time. We were expected to win that game. It wasn't... The, a lot of people probably felt that, oh, why would you be playing Fitzroy on such an important occasion? Fitzroy killed us. And really, like, we just didn't get going. It probably started out the year uh, in a bad light because we, after such a great win the previous year, expected to go on. We never made the finals the following year, 1970. Yeah, so it was lovely meeting the Queen, and I saw that article in the paper. Yeah. yeah I thought, oh, yeah, really fantastic. And she did look so lovely, and it was it was a highlight. And you can see the photo over there. Yeah. 67 Sheedy with a moustache. <laughs> Now, in 67, you won the Premiership, but mm. the following year, you make the final. Mm. 69, you won the Premiership, and the following year, you made the final. Then made the finals, no. no. There was only a final four, yeah. so like that probably didn't help, of no. course. And there wasn't too many... So what happened in 1970? In, 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 in 1970, after such a yeah. powerhouse performance in the final series yeah. in 69. Again, did we get a, did they get ahead of the oh, finals? I, would, I, I, I suppose so. We never learned well from it, I suppose. No. Um, yeah, in 71... We were the best side in the competition, in my opinion, yeah. but we really probably struggled a bit on the back line, and we probably really made up because of the fact that we were so good around the field mm. and kicked the ball long and direct, and yeah, and we had a good forward line. And I suppose 71, when we got beaten in that prelim final, which rained, like really, like was one thing what we couldn't handle at that stage, which we come to be very good at later, uh, and the rain come along, and Carl Dietrich was um, a dominating player against Richmond. He really played well every game we ever saw him play. Mm. And when it rained, it just sued him right down the ground. Mm. And uh, 
we've had to sit in the grandstand watching the game. Yeah. I just want to talk briefly about the Barrett Stewart swap. Yeah. I spoke to Alan Cook. Yep. And he said that it was a tough decision for you to let Billy Barrett go mm. because he was one of your boys. Yeah. How tough was it? Yeah, well, yeah, I oh, know it was very tough. And really, I suppose Billy um, had been such a great player for a long time from a very young age. As you know, he was down at the ground at 16 years of age. And I know a lot of people have done that, but he'd been with us for 11 years. And I suppose uh, he just probably had a couple of things which was upsetting him. And yeah, and I just think that he f a new club was needed for him. Did you, did you think the swap was actually going to happen? I mean, did you think yourself that this swap couldn't possibly happen? Well, it wasn't actually a swap at that particular time. It's just that the way it worked out, because we were prepared to let Billy go. Yeah. Billy didn't know what he was going to do. I get on really well with him. We're really good mates even now. Let's move to 1972, if we can. I heard you say recently that it took you a while to get over the loss of 72. Yeah, well, very much You're so. such a positive person, Tom. Yeah, but that's when probably the thing that uh, uh, made me be positive, I suppose, really? having that experience, because it was something that was so shattering to be the best team in the competition and only have to front up to win the grand final, and it didn't work out that way. Yeah. Because we, we dominated during the year. We killed them. We killed them, and I remember Craig McCullough just to run out and punch the ball towards our goal. I've never seen a fella punch the ball so far. It would land over the A, the square. He was just unreal. He just sprung and fell to the ball. And like we just, oh, we were in such momentum. Uh, we probably once again still weak on the back line. We had players who really, um, that was probably our weakness. We always felt that. We didn't feel that we had a great time. I know when I would sit down and talk with, say, the Alan Cook and the Bob Dickinson and the Graham Richards and fellas like that, and Johnny Nixon fellas, we always felt that we still needed players. Mm -hmm. Like, as the years got going, we've got a better team now than what we had back then. Now, we, got, we talk about our team being such a great team, yeah. but back then we could see a stack of weaknesses in our team. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I think the fact that I've pushed them up and... Uh, Faded them so much, people probably think, Jesus Christ. Yeah, we were such, they must have been a super team. Yeah. But I think we've done that a lot. Mm. Yeah, because we keep on bringing up the Kevin Bartlett and the Royce yeah. Hearts. And, but we felt our Ruckman were, like Michael Green used to do well in the finals, but really, like Michael dropped out that year, 72. Mm. I remember saying to him, Geez, I hope it's not a case where we'll be needing you, you're sitting in the grandstand. Mm. Well, that's exactly what happened. Mm. Exactly what happened. We played, say, Ray Bowenich in the back pocket. Now, Ray wasn't a back pocket player, but we, we had nobody else to play the position. He was six foot four and very agile, but he was a forward and a ruckman. Yeah, so we had to play him back there and he had six goals kicked on him, that sort of stuff. We played Rex at centre back on Robert Walls. Yeah, Rex wasn't centre back really. Like, he finished up playing all right the following year in the back pocket on John Nichols, that sort of stuff. But, yeah. Can you tell me just the weeks after the final, after the grand final? I felt so low. I could see how people could do stupid things in depression and I was not going to see people who I had to see in my job yet because I knew they were just going to talk about football. I was in a real down and five weeks later when I'm driving home and I know where I was, I was in the car by myself going past the uh, Elwood football grounds there down near the beach and I said to myself, and I'm thinking poor old me, poor old me, poor old me and then all of a sudden I said aloud, oh Christ I've got to snap out of this. I can't help what's happened. It's over, it's finished, it's done. I can't do a damn thing about it. It should have been, but it wasn't. Can't do a thing about 72, but by the living hell, I can do something about 73. I said this aloud. I can remember it, nearly word for word. And I said, 
1973 started then. We are in the first week of November from the grand final, which was played probably late September. And anyway, 73 comes along and the Blues have gone ahead of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, we were up there. They had to play us in the grand final. And I remember this so well also because uh, we've had the meeting, we have the video, we've got the brunch. The coach gets up and usually talks about 30 minutes, but if the players feel that they've got something to offer, please feel free. But after five minutes, I thought, it's not much good hanging on to them. They're ready. And I remember, clap my hand, stop, over the ground. Not much good holding on. And I can remember the faces of the players. They just looked, they were like men on a mission. They said they were on something. Look, your mum could walk past you. Your girlfriend could walk past you. Wife, and not a player said a word. And, well, it wasn't a game, it was a shame. Like, they brutalised them in every way. And it was just one of those things that it probably, well, when we got back to our function back at the Richmond ground after we'd been out for dinner, uh, and Paul said to me, you had the easiest day of your life today. There was no way known that mob were going to get anywhere near us. I remember that so well. That always stick in my mind. And, that, and I thought, that's exactly how I felt, yeah, yeah even before the game. What, yeah. a, what, a, what a transition from the previous year yeah. to, to that. Yep. Yeah, they kicked 28 goals, 9. It was really freakish. Like three players kicked 19-2 between them. That's freakish. Yeah. Which was Alex Jezelenko, John Nichols and Robert Walls. Yeah, like you don't get that, do you? And the ball, a bouncy, bouncy, bouncy through somebody's legs goal. And that's just the way things were happening. Did you ever feel as low as you did after 72 ever again? Never, no. Since no. then... Everything's a positive yeah. for you and yeah. everything is... Yeah, as I say, when I've got the sack from different clubs, I don't even... I just put it out of my mind. Okay. Don't even make excuses or don't even be interviewed. Yeah. And so what they like, even if they want to interview, I don't even bring up my real true thoughts because I think, oh, well, what the heck? Yeah, yeah what the heck? Did the club realise it's hard to win back-to-back? -back? Yes, I guess they did. Uh, but really, we didn't have exactly the same team the following year, but really we were good. And I just felt that we're... You've got to be a big show. Yeah, going to be a big show. That's what I thought about that. So how tough is it when you come in the 74 in the grand final to get the team motivated? One of the things, yeah, I remember this so well also because there'd been a lot of, uh, say, talk and controversy when Kevin Barthold didn't win the Brownlow because he'd won 15 out, no, 13 out of 15 awards that year, which is freakish. And I can remember the one he didn't win was at, the, say, the TV where there's a car. He was at front. I think he was about six votes in front two weeks to go. And one of the commentators gave Lee Matthews three votes in successive weeks to make it a draw. He never even got a mention in any of the other papers. It was nearly as though he'd backed Lee Matthews. And Kevin and Lee Matthews won the car over Kevin. And the other one was the Brownlow. He is dominant. And when he didn't win the Brownlow, we had people, uh, I think it might have been Alan Swan, somebody like that, somebody, a high official, got up and said, this is an absolute joke. And things like that. And, like, it's sad because Pete Greg is such a champion and such a beautiful person. I felt, I felt embarrassed because, like, the Brownlow's the umpire's best and fairest. They've got their right to do what they like. We may not agree with it. And when you look at the Brownlow, there's been some great players win it, but there's been some great, great, great players who didn't win it. And if you say, who's the best footballer you ever see? Most people see Lee Matthews, uh, Polly Farmer, Gary Ablett, and... Uh, John Nichols and Ron Barassi and fellas like that. So, like, really, it's umpire's best and fairest. Mm. But really, it had the papers and the crowd. I thought, oh, the crowd's going to be really much against us, yeah. which can sway the umpires. Mm -hmm. And I don't say that 
being nasty, but that's this natural reaction when the crowd are screaming, screaming, screaming. And I can remember Harry Beitzel saying to me, look, it might be a bad idea after the teams line up if you had a couple of players go over and congratulate Keith Gregg. And she was out there on the, on the ground. On the ground, yes. This is when the players after the national anthem were just there. And quite a few players did that. And uh, and I just thought that was it was a little, say, tactic which might have helped us in some way. Mm. Like, let the people see that really what somebody's opinion is maybe not the opinion of everybody else. Because yeah. there wouldn't have been a Richmond player who would have been upset outside of probably Kevin uh, for not winning the Brownlow. But, that, like, we're disappointed for Kevin, but we all also recognise what a great player Pete Wigg was. And a very fair player and, and obvious that a good choice for a Brownlow medal winner. Yeah, I remember that really well. And as the game got going, uh, we just run away as the game got going. Yeah. We're probably a little bit behind in the early part, but then when just did a couple of things, I remember that handball that Kevin Sheedy did, he's near the point post, lining up and not even looking at other players around the field. And as he runs in, he's letting everybody think he's going to have a shot at goal from a tight angle. He handballs with a man, man over the mark to Michael Green, who's unattended in the goals where, and kicks a simple goal. Yeah. And I think that type of thing, you know, some little thing in a game, in any game for that matter, it could be in tennis, it could be in cricket and stuff like that, that this was a, a really a thing that probably got everybody up. Yeah, I remember that so well. Yeah, so that game was back-to-back. Yeah. I've only got two more questions. Yes. Which is... And you're going well. Oh, thank you. What comes to mind when I say the name John Petura? Yeah, well, I suppose um, we made a big mistake in as much that we cleared three players, and particularly Brian Roberts. The other two players really couldn't quite get a game with our team. Uh, and, like, they were classic examples of fellas succeeding in a big way when they've mm. gone to another club. Because Francis Jackson played 100 games at half back. Like, he couldn't quite get into our team because we've got a couple of good players playing in this position. And that can happen, of course. Uh, Graham Teasdale, who we probably uh, didn't give many opportunities and played him on the forward line. Mm. And everybody realises what a great ruckman he was. In the year he won the Brownlow, he dominated. He was by far the best player in the competition. I think he took 23 marks against Collingwood when I coached the Maggies. So, like, really, it wasn't a good swap in as much as that. John had been out for probably about 15, 18 months. Yeah, so that mightn't have helped him. But it really, like, losing Brian Roberts was a massive disappointment. Never woke up until after it had done. I reckon five minutes after we'd swapped Brian Roberts, and all of a sudden you start thinking, there's a lot in football. He was everybody's friend. We laughed with him. We laughed at him. And he was a butt of a lot of jokes, and he put the jokes on other people. And that really, it was a real downer. It was really so... I, if you could have changed your mind even, say, the next day, you probably wouldn't have accepted it. Yeah, you would have probably went against it. In John Petura's case, well, he was a star down in South Melbourne. Unfortunately, uh, well, he never, say, really got into it to, to that extent. You know, whether he felt the, world of, the weight of the world on his shoulders because he'd been so much controversy over it, that can likely happen. I've seen that happen a lot. Players who you think are going to be... Yeah, a lot of players, when they've gone from one club to another club, where you would have thought they would have dominated. A lot of them haven't. Yeah, maybe because of the amount of money and the amount of publicity, this can happen, yeah. Tell me about the Windy Hill Brawl. What was the feeling like on that day? Yeah, quite amazing. And, um, yeah, Mel Brown had just, I think he got reported for striking. And at three-quarter time, no, half-time, and I was sitting in the coach's box inside the rooms, and uh, I saw, when he's coming off the ground, that little John Casson fly at him. Yeah, I saw that. And everybody says that, 
that they forget that he was even in it. That I got no doubt that he was the one who started the whole thing. And then it just all hell broke loose. And I remember uh, people trying to break it up and getting King hit. And that's how the way I got his jaw broken while he's trying to break it up. And Ron Andrews as King hit him from the side. All that type of stuff. And I can remember because I had good vision of it all because we're just sitting it's right in front of us. And I remember Graham Richmond hitting the uh, fella on the ground and stuff like that. Yeah, so, yeah, to me that was just one of the things that happened, but it was a strange one because it doesn't normally happen at half-time, does it, really? And particularly when I had a uh, ringside view of the whole thing, yeah. Did, 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 it, did it affect anything at half-time for you? Do you recall the players coming angry or, I mean, what was the feeling for the rest of the game? Yeah. Dad remembered being in the rooms and, you know, people milling around the rooms outside the rooms and yeah. it created that tension. Yeah, yeah, probably. Know. But it didn't to me. Right. No, probably that we're probably going to see how Brian was in the doctor's room, mm. so I probably you'd probably miss a bit like that. So you feel angry? Was that? Did you feel angry at all that your players have been subjected to that? Oh, you probably did at the time, yeah. but I don't think overly. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose you're more interested and worried about some of the boys who might have got hurt. Sure. And I say Brian did get his jaw broken. He's such a popular person there at the club. What words can you describe about Graham Richmond? Well, Graham Richmond, Richmond by name and Richmond by nature, because he was such a demented Richmond person, uh, he was terrific for the club, and particularly because of the amount of work that he did, bringing players into the club. He, I can remember when I was coaching Shepparton, and he came up to see me. He was on his way up to... Uh, up to Kahuna to see the Farron brothers and I said now look I'd like to be able to say point players in Richmond's area what should I look for he said look your sign tend to get one as long as they're quick and they've got some talent and it's up to your opinion and we'll send other people up there and I just thought uh, he was never gonna say be too tired to go and see mm. and like he would be out on a say weekend and even days off, he never had days off, because he worked so tirelessly for the football club. I remember that so well. He'd come back from one place. I remember he'd come back from Mildura, and I think I might have rang him up, and he'd flown back, I think it was, and he'd already gone to Benzard to see a player. Yeah, I remember that. Like, that was on a Sunday. Graham actually left the club on about three occasions. Yeah, people don't realise that, because he got upset over different things. And I suppose his fight with Ray Dunn. And the fight with Ray Dunn, which was quite amazing, there was a real lesson for Tommy Hafey, you know, as much that uh, they were both having stories in the paper written by certain people about their tremendous input for the Richmond Football Club. And it seemed like a jealousy thing. And I felt at the time, who cares? Who gets the kudos? It's for our club. And even, say, the Charlie Callender, who's a property steward, and the Kevin McAvoy, who's the steward on the door, they all get terrific feeling and input over those type of things. And that's why I always felt myself. Like the club is not just one or two people, mm. it's everybody working together. And I really felt it showed up because of that reason. The articles in the paper more or less made out that one was probably more important than the other, and I thought, well, it was really so petty. Mm. Yeah, but uh, Graham did leave the club on about three occasions, and as you know, like he went into the hotel business, mm. which didn't give him enough time, I suppose, like his hotel business was probably important to him. Yeah, but he was terrific at our club, there's no doubt about the input. Did you work closely with him? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you had oh, a great relationship? Yeah, well, we're friends before the right. football. Yeah. He played in the reserves, he played in the thirds. He only played a couple of games in the, reserve, in the reserves, but he's mainly a thirds player. But he used to see me, and I used to see him, say, 
at other places. We go to the beach together and that sort of stuff down Torquay. So he was a personal friend. Is it fair to say he was passionate? Oh, very much so. One last question. How did you end up finishing up at Richmond's College? Well, I was disappointed with a few people down there. I've been appointed for my 12th year and I, I wasn't comfortable with it. I was really, and I'd never been that way. And a fortnight later, I thought, oh, I just don't want to be here. Yeah, which is very strange. People think I've got the sack, but I'd already, I'd already given them notice. I give them notice. I thought I'd go to West Australia or South Australia because I didn't think I could coach against the Tigers. And uh, I remember Harry Kernahan ringing me up. He said, the best club in Australia hasn't got a coach. The best coach in Australia hasn't got a job. What about we get together? Isn't that a beautiful line? That's what he said. What was his at, role? What was Harry? He was role? at Glenelg. He was a general manager. That's Stephen Kernahan's dad. And yeah. Harry himself was a star player. I thought, yeah, and I thought, uh, I thought that's what I could do. And then Western Australia, but also I thought, I've got to up stumps and go. And then Collingwood spoke to me, they were on the bottom of the ladder. And I just felt that Collingwood shouldn't have been there. I didn't want to go to a club where it was going to be a cellar dweller. Mm. And I looked at the players and I looked at the season they had. And I felt that they would probably be a bit embarrassed and they'd be keen to improve where they were. And uh, that's where I went to. Yeah, and I said it was a good time to go. But I really believed that it doesn't matter who was to be coaching there, they were going to improve yeah. from where they were. You can only go up. Yeah. You could be on the bottom again. But I just felt that there was a lot of... Well, Collingwood didn't stay on the bottom or down at the bottom for too long. Yeah, that was the way I was looking at that. I'm yeah. guessing you would have got a few people who... Um, I'm guessing you would have got a few people who may have approached you other clubs. From my research, it's possible that Melbourne approached you? There was about three or four clubs. Yeah. Is it fair to say that maybe you may not have decided to coach certain clubs because of the proximity to Richmond? And that they were, they were close by to where Richmond was? Uh, no, mainly because of the fact that they're not sort of Tommy Hafey type clubs. <laughs> yeah, like as you can see, I'm, uh, I, I felt that I'm more suited to the Collingwoods yeah. and the Richmonds yeah. and probably the Fitzroys and stuff like that, maybe the Footscrays and that sort of stuff. There'd be some clubs like that, but there'd be other clubs that really wouldn't be Tommy Hafey. Yeah. yeah, you know? Yeah, but really Collingwood suited me right down to the ground be, simply because of the fact that the, where they were and the players that I felt could have still, I know that some of the older players had now got past their best. And like the Des Tunnams, the Wayne Richardsons, the Len Thompsons and boys like that who had been very good players, the ones who the children had their numbers on their duffel coats and stuff like that, their state players, their best inferiors, and they were in the twilight of their career. But I was hoping they'd get a year out of themselves. Mm. And then we had the young players coming up through, uh, you're hoping that might have made a step or two forward. Which obviously is uh, Peter Moore, mm. Billy Pickens, and the Ronnie Wearmouth. Although they were, they were players that had been around for quite some time as well. Yeah, yeah. But and over the years, I can tell you now, I would have had approaches by twelve clubs, and I've, whenever I've been contracted another club, I never even thought of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that's basically the end of the interview. Unless there's anything that you wanted to touch on or say oh. about your coaching career that you haven't said. Uh, There's an opportunity to say anything at all. Yeah. You don't have to say anything. No. Is there any point or...? No, well, I always feel that the coach has got to be the most enthusiastic person in the place. First there, last to leave. No excuses. And also, I've always believed, trying to get the players together. Now, we had a lot of functions. This is where... Because we spend so much time with the players, and Maureen had them home with their wife, and, like, they probably didn't get that at other clubs. Mm. And we were very, very close. And we had so many functions just simply because of what I said earlier. Mm. So I felt that um, 
being honest that way and being enthusiastic, and I think they, the money was never an issue. I got paid chicken feet, like really, nearly all my, all my life. Um, although I suppose up in Sydney I was the highest paid coach in Australia. Yeah, so no, I'd say that I'd still just believe it basic and simple, and I still do have this laugh when I see some of the crap written in the paper by wankers who just probably don't even understand football. They all thought this was a modern thing. I can't even the extent where I see that they were saying how good they St Kilda were tackling, never mention the fact that Melbourne just give the hand pass to the fellow who had to be tackled. Even my mum could have tackled him, really, that's how it was. Because a poor kid who was going to grab the ball, the ball in his hand was immediately grabbed. Yeah, I just thought so much stupid stuff like that. And like as I say, we're simple and basic. My favourite coach of all time was Norm Smith. I just thought he was absolutely marvellous. And that's when I went to Shepparton, it was the way we played at the game. Yeah, I just can remember playing against teams like that, knowing how difficult it was in the back line. When the ball's coming down to star players quickly, one out, like Bob Johnson, superstar. But he's six foot six, six foot seven, and he's up against a fellow six foot one. Didn't have a chance. And the one out, who's going to take the mark? And even if the ball hits the ground, the fellow who snaps the goal is going to be, say, Ian Ridley or, or Jeff Tunbridge, Kevin Bartlett or Peter Dacos, where they get most of their goals from. It's just so basic and simple, and it's still simple. Except everybody thinks now you've got to take a mark to kick a goal. God, God. Little Stephen Milne kicked 62 goals two years ago. He couldn't outmark Gavin Gouchy, but he's just like, just because he got to the foot of the ball. Peter Dacos kicked 97 goals one year, and he wouldn't take too many marks. Kevin, as you know, kicked 85 goals in 1980, including 21 in the finals. He wouldn't have taken too many marks. Yeah. So, like, I still think it's still the best way to go. Mm -hmm. I appreciate your time and I thank you. Yeah, good boy. Cheers. Good boy. Have a go as well.